Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. This is our 12th episode and in this episode we once again discussed the best stories from across the continent. In Italy we looked at the relentless Atalanta, we looked at Lazio's title credentials and then Michael gave us a brief overview of all the other big stories from Italy. In Spain, Rudy Barlow spoke about the recent sacking of Real Betis manager, or former Real Betis manager, Ruby, just 33 games into his tenure. He also discussed the heartwarming return of Bruno Soriano, the Via Real midfielder, after more than 1,000 days out injured. Attentions then turned to Germany and the tantalising final day. Werder Bremen and Fortuna Dusseldorf are set to play out games against Köln and Union Berlin respectively in the bid to avoid automatic relegation and secure a place in the perilous relegation playoff. The lesser of two evils, I suppose. And then I also discussed the Liga. One of the most predictably unpredictable leagues in the world, let alone second division leagues in the world, has gone down once again to the final day. So do listen on to hear us speak about all of that and so much more. Thank you once again for your continued support. We do really appreciate it. Please do feel free to follow us on Twitter if you don't already, at RTNFootball. We'll be sure to follow you back. Enjoy. I was listening back to some of the previous episodes that we've recorded and every single one of those episodes has me saying hello and welcome. So I've decided to mix it up a little bit by not saying hello and welcome and, and, and starting as I have started there. Anyway, and I always say as well, it's once again lovely to have Rudy Barlow and Michael Jones, but I don't know how else to introduce you guys. In any event, Barlow... Michael, how have you been? Barlow, how are you coping with this beautiful sunshine that we've had over the last few days? I mean, the sun is brilliant. It's uh, much welcomed after many weeks of grey. Sadly, the um, the pollen count has gone through the roof, as I'm sure any hay fever sufferers will, will also be aware. So um, I've been battling against a very small, small and significant illness uh, recently during the global pandemic. So I guess I can't ask for too much sympathy. Yeah, your, your eyes are looking a bit a bit heavier there, Barlow. We're recording as we always do via video so that we can we can communicate with body language. And, and Barlow, your eyes are looking a little bit sorry there, but I'm sure the pollen count will go down and you'll be able to take to the great outdoors once again. Michael, how, how are you doing? How are things down south? Yeah, they're good, thank you. Again, I think I'd taken for granted a bit just how important aircon is for an office job. I've been working from home the last few days and it's just been torture in this heat but other, other than that quite good comment um, doing my first commentary tomorrow since football stops so i'm looking forward to that bkp uh, wolves versus aston villa and west midlands derby so and will you get to go to mauling you to do that michael or you've done it remotely no sadly not it'll be done it'll be done from my own house so hopefully i've seen some of the other experiences of commentators especially when the Bundesliga started delivery drivers using the doorbell when asked specifically not to fortunately we don't have a doorbell but yeah hopefully it won't be too disruptive yeah hopefully the the yodel delivery man doesn't get in your way just as Raul Jimenez scores yet another goal that season linked with Real Madrid Manchester United Arsenal and just about every major team in Europe hopefully you don't have a, a, a doorbell delivery to, as you say, we don't have a doorbell, but hopefully you don't have a, a dog barking in, in, in the neighbouring gardens or anything to, to get in your way. But that's exciting and another sign that things are returning to as close to normality as possible. You must be excited for that. But anyway, moving over to the continent, we're going to start this episode with Syria. It has returned, of course, since, well, we had Coppa Italia just before we recorded the last episode. And since then, we've had a host of Serie A games. And for a league that many hold the, the wrong preconception that it doesn't provide goals, we have had 
a plethora, some might say, of, of Italian goals this week. Um, and I just want to start with a team that we have spoken about, some would say arguably too much on the podcast, Atalanta. Now, they hit Sassuolo for four in their first game back after lockdown, and that was the ninth time this season that they'd scored four or more goals. It's ridiculous. They're making a mockery of the Italian league. Maybe not so much in league position, but certainly in the goal scored column. And following their 3-2 win over Lazio on Wednesday, they've now scored three or more goals in 16 games this season. They've netted 22 goals in their last five games alone. And in total, they've scored 77 goals. It's ridiculous. In 27 Serie A games. And that's already seven more than Juventus scored in the whole of last season. And we've got still 11 games to go. So we've spoken about them, as, as I've said, Michael, so many times on this podcast. But just why are they so good? Yeah, I mean, when you were saying about we've discussed them a lot, I would suggest, you know, any listeners who want to hear more about it, tune into episode six, which is one of our lockdown episodes where we discussed it all. I mean, and and a lot of that, we'll, I, I touch on sort of why, why they've been so good, some of the things that... Gasparini tries to build that belief, the style of play that they have. One of the sort of more interesting things that I noticed, which kind of evolved from looking at that, was tactically the variety of methods we discussed. You know, they'll be looking to use the wing backs a lot, not keep the ball in the middle of the pitch much, play it on the edges of the area, but then also move it into crossing positions, just completely try and perplex the defences at the face. And then Lazio has been one of the best in Serie A this season. I saw a really interesting analysis after the Sassuolo game about the diagonal passes from the centre-backs so that the centre-backs are never playing the ball square at the back, something which is always synonymous with quite a dull style of play and not very progressive up the field. And I guess that must it shows the level of detail that Gasparini goes into with all of this. In terms of sort of all the pressing and going forwards and why they've been really successful, we did I did say in the last episode, I think they may benefit from the fitness level of being a level above most other teams. And I think that's certainly been the case. But also looking at an interesting sort of byproduct of all, all the good things that they do is, you know, and you link this to the likes of all the best teams around Europe and stuff, and they ultimately force a lot of errors out of the other team. Atalanta, though they dominate a lot of the goal scoring shots, that's they don't really dominate many of the defensive stats, albeit one of the ones which they do score pretty well on is they have their third most passes blocked in Serie A, which when you consider for a team that has some of the most possession in the league is a really impressive statistic. And you could see that on show in the build up to Malinowski's equaliser against Lazio. They went 2-0 down against Lazio before scoring three. And they were relentless. They forced Lazio into mistakes. They found their weaknesses as gone to discuss and just those energy levels that made them a really exciting prospect we also looked at them being in the top four race I think now they're only quite hand into because of Inter's draw to Sassuolo and I think they're looking upwards rather than downwards now yeah no and I, I think having watched that game against Lazio Lazio obviously raced into an early two goal lead and that would have fueled the, the fires of their Serie A title push. The own goal from Martin Baroon, quite comical and, and in typical Martin Baroon fashion, he had a, a response on Twitter that, that was quite brilliant. And, and then Milinkovic Savic scoring a, a wonderful curled effort from 25, 30 yards out, I suppose. Great goal. And then Atalanta come back into it. Surely if a team's going for the title as Lazio are, they should not be throwing away a two-goal lead. And on that note, we have lauded Simone Inzaghi, the Lazio manager, and he is seeing all his work finally paying dividends this season as Lazio chase only their third ever league title. It's almost, of course, 20 years exactly almost since they won the Serie A title under the, the brilliant figure that is Svenjon Eriksson. But a lot of people will be questioning Inzaghi and this Lazio side and their bounce-back ability after that setback, and it was a huge setback against Atalanta. And they'll have to have that bounce-back ability to stay in this title race. How do you think the defeat will affect them, Michael? Yeah, I mean, obviously, they'll have to recognise the mistakes I made. But into context, it's their first defeat in the league since 25th last year. But I think also, you know, the context also is relevant for the present. And this is the first game after lockdown and they've lost. I think Atalanta benefited 
did from uh, having that game against Aspolo beforehand, having that extra bit of match bit going on. Their ball retention wasn't good enough. I think they, I think they, they only had forty-three possession percent possession compared to Atalanta's fifty-seven, which isn't actually too bad against Atalanta, but. They only had six shots to Atalanta's 21, which is a really telling one. Um, also, just having a look into it, all of Atalanta's goals did come from either crosses or corners, which exposed the weakness with them. You know, some Strakosha really struggled to deal with some of the set pieces in that game. And again, Atalanta aren't always known for this style of, you know, the goal scoring and stuff, but Palomino's goal could have been dealt with really easily, as good as Malinowski's was it was ultimately a failed clearance that led to it and the marking was poor for the first goal as well. I think what you've got to remember, though, is I think they're still definitely within the title race. We've got a lot of games left. I think there's still at least 10 games left in Serie A. Um, they're only four points behind Juventus, and I'll come on to Juventus and all the problems I suspect they're going to have going forwards. But when you lose to a team like Atalanta, as Lazio did, in the form Atalanta have been in the second half of the season, Atalanta are not your stereotypical Italian team. I think the style of play is much more synonymous or similar to what you'd see in Germany or the UK or with Ajax last season. And I think they're not going to play another team like Atalanta in the league this season. And I think that will also almost be a sigh of relief for Inzaghi because it means, yes, this first game was a loss, but now they they won't risk playing them in five games time when they're building up some momentum. Now they have a chance of four points back if they can keep up with them for the whole time until they play Juventus on the 20th of July. Then I, I suspect that, you know, the title race will still be wide open between those two teams. I think sort of quickly as well, we discussed on the first episode all the way back with Lazio's exit in the Europa League against the likes of Celtic, Wren and Cluj. And I think those team style of plays were probably not as good as Atalanta, but they were similar to that. And I think it maybe it just exposed some of the flaws and why Lazio might struggle in the Champions League next season. No. You sort of mentioned Juventus there. They are obviously top. And yet, it seems, it feels like Sarri is under heavy criticism and has been for quite a while. Is this feeding into some of their performances? Like, can he control the pressure now that they have a four-point gap? What do you think, Michael? I, I don't know. I mean, when, when, when I say about the four-point gap as well and Lazio trying to keep it, I don't necessarily that, think that means Lazio winning every game to keep up with Juve up until the 20th of July. I think it's just Lazio having at least similar form to Juventus. And I don't think that might necessarily take much unless Juventus really pick up. Beat Bologna 2-0 the other night. But before that, it was 2-0-0 draws in the Coppa Italia semi in the final against Lazio. And just looking at the team against Lazio was quite an insipid performance. And they're out of the starting 11, only three out of the 11 would be in the years that you probably deem a player at the prime between the ages of 26 and 30. As for the Napoli, they had seven players in the prime. And it's just, you know, if Juventus are going to go against those teams, it might be a bit just a bit, bit, bit more mobile around the pitch. You know, they were exposed horribly against Ajax last season in the Champions League, albeit not under Sarri. But if anything, Sarri's style of football makes them a bit more susceptible to those kind of teams now with an Atalanta player that could be really exposed there so you can kind of see why optimism's not high on the other side there is there is a bit of optimism you know if it's not this season or if it's not sorry for Juventus in regards to the team because the shape the team does really need real rebuilding and um, you know a player who has been sort of on the periphery of really making the break for the top level we're playing at the top left level is Barcelona's Artur um, who is you know, reports coming now of a 72 million bid for him being accepted by Juventus and a player. I heard reports of the player agreeing it today with Miralem Pjanic going the other way. I think, I think potentially this could be a really good move for the Brazilian. I'm not so sure you will agree because, you know, when we talk about Asian teams, Barcelona's has also come under fire for quite a bit for that as well. And I was just wondering, you know, with Pjanic going the other way and Arthur leaving, what what you've needed those reports and rumours. Look, I mean, the first thing to get out of the way here is that this deal is is not being done for sporting reasons. I think 
I'd highly recommend to any and all of our listeners to go online, go on Twitter and find Diane Christine, who has, she's done a thread which essentially has outlined why this deal is being done from a Barcelona perspective and essentially how this board is managing this transfer to save them from potentially having to pay a lot of money to the club. I think the second one that's slightly more slightly more well-known perhaps is the Swiss Ramble on Twitter and they unpack some of the murkier financial goings-on in the football world and then they also did a thread on this. They got into the player amortization which is um, a term for footballing accounting wizardry and that essentially explains why this deal is happening. From, from a Barcelona perspective, from a sporting view, personally, I think that Arthur is in the right, perhaps not the right environment, but he is at the right club. If the environment fixes itself around him, I think he would be in a position to be dominant at, that, at a huge club for five, six years, playing a style of football he would like. Whether that happens, that depends on elections and... Essentially, it depends on him wanting to wait it out and hope that this board is gone before he is. Perhaps that's a bit of a romantic view because I understand that he's a, he's a professional footballer and there's only so much you can take of a club telling you to go and to get out and that they don't want you. It's, it's a bit of a romantic view to say that he should stand up for his dream, so to speak, if that's what it really is, and stay there. But my advice to him would be to stay, but I would totally understand if he leaves on the other hand Pjanic come in he's not a bad player but at the same time I like you say he's an aging player he's probably not got too many years at his peak left and I think most Barcelona fans are somewhat tearing their hair out at this deal because it sporting wise just doesn't make sense I, I, I don't know what the Italian perspective has been Michael, I don't know if you had something to comment on it, Ali. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm more than happy for Michael to comment in a, a minute, but I was just, say, I was just thinking, Paul, that it just seems to almost be emblematic of of the issues off off the field and those issues threatening to spill over to to on the field as well. And it just seems to me like such a backwards transfer. Artur, young and maybe not the, the most exquisite of players, but still very, very good. Bringing in Pjanic. Who, who is aging and who is, is good, technically brilliant, but I just, I don't think it's the transfer that Barca need just now. And yeah, as you're saying, there's there's more to it than, than perhaps would meet the, the casual observer's eye. Michael, did you have something to add? Yeah, I mean, it's people seem to be forgetting that Pjanic is only 30, you know, people like it's an Asian player, but, well, maybe you'd say that. I think one of the interesting things is with Pjanic is, He's one of those players, a bit like Fabregas was, who started playing so young at Mets and really regularly at the age of 17, 18, and he's not missed much football in his career. And I know he had a serious injury at Leon, I think, but other than that, he's generally been around for most of it. And I think it may just be all of that catching up with him. Whether a move will be good for him, it'll be really interesting to see how both sides of the transfer go. You know, if Pjanic does go to Barca, certainly it's not out of the question he could be big success but I just think it's unlikely. Looking around sort of what else happened in Serie A it was another imminent signing for Juve who put in a brilliant showing as Serie A resumed Michael just briefly what have been some of the highlights so far of Serie A's return? Yeah so yeah speaking of a new Juve player Dejan Kulisevsky Just a little post recording detour sorry to intervene but I'm editing the episode it's half past midnight on Saturday morning or Friday night depending on how you live your life and I just have to uh, say I hope that you enjoyed Michael's pronunciation Barlow and I had to listen to him practicing that pronunciation for about half an hour (laughs) before we started recording so yeah hopefully you enjoyed it anyway sorry for that digression and yeah we'll go back to the episode now Swedish winger for Parma who is set to join Juventus he was so influential in a 4-1 win over Genoa um, in the first game back for them in a 4-1 victory Andreas Cornelius who some may remember from his ill-fated spell at Cardiff City the large Danish striker scored a 
Patrick, but it was largely thanks to Kulisevsky's creativity. Um, and then he capped it off with a wonderful goal himself. So signs really bleak for Genoa, but good for Palmer. And they'll enjoy the last few weeks of Kulisevsky as a Palmer player. Then just quickly across the league, uh, Milan started with a 4-1 win over Verona, which is a, was a really good result. So I'd, I'd, I'm hoping we'll be able to talk about Milan more going forwards. But yeah, positive signs there. I thought they were good in the cup as well. And Torino picked up a must-needed win. So looking at the bottom of the table, it looks like Genoa really could be one of the big stories in Sampdoria if Lecce can get something against Juventus, which has just started now. Yeah, Michael, I'm sure uh, you'll be gutted to be missing that one as we record this on a beautiful Friday night. A beautiful Friday night indeed. And yeah, you know, great to hear about about the, the nuances of, of Syria and its return. A really good debate there on our tour as well, obviously on the pitch, but also plenty going on off the pitch there. And on, on the, the topic of our tour at Barcelona, there is plenty to talk about in Spain, in La Liga, and Rudy Barlow has, has teed up some, some juicy topics for us to, to discuss. We could perhaps say one got in in Norito and one got out in Ruby, but Rudy Barlow is going to tell us a bit about that in a minute. We'll be right back. Thanks. La Liga, we've, we've actually tried to record this bit uh, three times now, so hopefully we, we got on a bit better. I would, I would stress that it's, it's, it's all my fault. It's, of course, not the fault of the, the faultless, impeccable Rudy Barlow. We've spoken about Real Betis quite a bit in the last two podcasts, guys, and once again, they're in the news for arguably the wrong reasons. Their manager, Ruby, has been sacked just 33 games into his tenure, having won only 10 of those matches. Throughout his managerial career, he seems to have either failed or, when he has done well, left very quickly. Maybe that's that's a harsh view to take, but maybe you can tell us more about that, Barlow. Anyway, at Real Betis, where did it all go wrong for Ruby, Ruby Barlow? Yeah, he's, he's gone, like you say, he's eight points above the drop now with eight games left, which, I mean, you, you gave us some of the stats there and, like, his history. I don't think anybody's quite entirely sure why it didn't work. It's as if... It kind of feels like two two friends have set set up their single friends on a date, and it should work really well. Both both set parties think that they should click, but somewhere there's just not been quite that spark. I mean, he's never really convinced since he's been at Betis, and I think I personally wonder if maybe it's a bit of a harder dressing room to manage than it looks. I mean, you've got the likes of Nabil Fakir in there, you've got. Borja Iglesias, who came into 30 million, Mark Bartra. You've got a lot of players that have been at big clubs previously and have been the star at those big clubs. So I do wonder if that played into it slightly. But I guess perhaps we should have just looked at his history. I mean, Ali, you mentioned that he he leaves jobs quickly or he fails. And yeah, he's been, I think it's nine clubs he's been at for a season or less. And it's either gone well or it's not gone. Um, and I think that more or less sums it up. So Whoever hires him next should get the good ruby. I do. I do wonder as well if some somebody did mention on the radios on Cadena Sera, I think, um, with Spanish radio station, and they made the point that if you did believe in Ruby, and if you let him bring in his man, the thirty million Jorge Iglesias, why are you not giving him more time than this season to imprint his methods? But admittedly, it wasn't particularly convincing. Looking forward, the sort of main candidates to, to go in at Betis have been Javi Gracia, Juan Marino, who's their big team coach. The names of Emery, Pablo Machin, and Bordelas at Hatafe have also been mentioned. But my favourite candidate for them would be Marcelino, who never, he always seems to fall out at the end, but never seems to do a bad job. Everywhere he goes, he seems to be able to get the players performing above their level, which... When you look at this better squad, if they perform above their level, they are in Champions League spots. They've got, they've got a hell of a team. But yeah, I think it's never really quite clicked for, for Ruby and Betis. And I just assume, assume that his next club will get the good Ruby, I guess. Yeah, no, he's, he's the sort of manager that you mentioned before, Paolo, how he's such a likeable guy. But likeability very rarely translates automatically into success on the pitch. And... It's ultimately been a, a, a fruitless spell for for Ruby in, in the south of Spain. And one team that is, is down the wrong end of the table, Betis, obviously, 
just about clear. But, you know, eight games still to go. They could be dragged into an uncurrent form. You wouldn't be against it. But one team who has enjoyed, shall we say, a bit of a, a revival uh, is, is Celta Vigo in recent weeks. They thumped Alaves, Oliver Burks. Alaves, of course, the, the roadrunner himself, 6-0 at the weekend in an uncharacteristically clinical performance. They actually scored over 20% of their goals in the entire season in that one game against Alaves. And I watched the second half and it was it, it was a strange match. That win was, of course, partly down to their new signing, Nolito, who listeners may remember had, had a rather uh, unfortunate spell at Manchester City when he did the, the very little, to, to say the least. But he scored one goal against Alaves and he provided a beautiful, it was a beautiful assist for Santimina as well. But in any event, his signing in the days before that tie with Alaves was rather controversial, Barlow, wasn't it? Do I tell the listeners a bit more about that? Yeah, just, just on that 6-0, uh, someone I think I remember seeing on Twitter is Alex Delmas made the point that Celta Vigo played like they should have been for the rest, of the rest of the season, given the players they have going forward. I mean, they have midfield forward, a really, really good, entertaining team, and they've been chronically underachieving for about a season and a half now. But like you say, this game was remarkable for Nolito, who came on, got a goal and an assist, and he was he was part of the emergency transfer loophole controversy that has engulfed La Liga this season. I estimate that this rule is going to go out of La Liga rules next season because it's sort of making a mockery of the league at this point, I think, to a point. Leganes valiantly fighting at the bottom. Javier Aguirre sort of almost working wonders despite not really having a hope of getting out. But yeah, the emergency transfers, they brought in Nolito for Sergio Alvarez, who's, who's the Celta Vigo injured goalkeeper out for the rest of the season. And if you're bringing in wingers, goal scorers, creative players to replace your goalkeepers, I think it really does sort of highlight the flaws with the rule. And I, I understand why it's there, but if you're going to have it, you need to make it stricter so that it isn't just teams poaching players and sort of widening the balance uh, or widening the gap between sort of the bigger teams and the smaller teams. Just before we move on, obviously we, we spoke about it in the group chat, guys. Literally, as Celta Vigo were dishing out an absolute doing to Alaves last Sunday, and and we said how this this in more ways than one this this strange transfer policy that they, they have in place in, in the league. And as you're saying, Bill, I can understand it to an extent, but as you're also saying, they have to police it more. It has to be a tighter rule than it is because at the moment clubs are making a, a, a mockery of it. We saw Leganish being. Early in the season, headlines were made when Martin Brathwaite signed for Barcelona. Barca paid his release clause, and you can't hold it against Martin Brath- Brathwaite for, for making the move to, to the new camp. So Leganish was a, a crucial player in their battle to beat the drop. And then, as if to rub salt into those relegation wounds, Celta Vigo, a, a key rival, if you like, in, in the relegation battle, are then able to go and sign a player of Nolito's pedigree. And Nolito, well, he didn't make it at Manchester City. And he obviously has links with, with Celta Vigo. And, and so that maybe facilitated the deal a lot more. Kind of some, some WhatsApp messages were perhaps exchanged. But Celta Vigo bring in Nolito, who for all his feelings in, in Manchester at the Etihad Stadium, is still a very good player. And you saw the difference that he made, although he didn't start against Aravis, comes on and scores the penalty and then provides that assist, he's given an immediate lift, and, and players like that do give a lift to the change room. So the Ghanis are down a striker, and their main delegation rivals are up a goal-scoring forward. It really stinks to me, and honestly, I would love I would love it if, uh, if, if the Ghanis stayed up. But I just, having watched them play, having watched the teams around them play, I just cannot see them stay up. Their manager, Aguirre, as you say, is a character, full-mouthed character, to say the least. But I, and I do pity them. I do really pity them because they have been well and truly on the wrong end of this quite ridiculous transfer rule. Michael, you had a question, didn't you? I'm, I'm on, on a rant here. Michael, you better come in and, and let, let me off the hook before my, my blood levels rise too much. Yeah, I really didn't want to stop you there, Ali. But sadly, it wasn't quite as, as loud at the game with the, you know, and the, when the fans obviously with lockdown and nobody was able to witness from the stands Nilito's return and it, his impact on the game. But there was a feel good story in La Ceramica, the home of 
Villarreal. Uh, you will have to excuse my pronunciation, Paolo. But yeah, I'm sure the listeners would love to hear a little bit more, more about this because it's, it's certainly a story you can appreciate from wherever you are, really. Yeah, 1,120 days was the gap between Bruno Sariano playing for Villarreal in 2017 and then coming on late on last Sunday night, I believe it was. And it really, like I talked about romance and football in Artur there earlier, but this is, uh, it's very, very much the heartwarming story because I think more on a football level, on a human level, this guy has been through hell. Three years he was out with successive injuries, then complications. We already know, well, I'm sure most of our listeners are aware of Santi Casola's struggles with injury. Bruno Soriano equally has had uh, a pretty bad time of it. He's His post-match interview is well worth a watch as well. He's borderline in tears. And he, he admits he was he was close to quitting. He went through dark times, I think. He, says, he said on the radio thereafter that it got to the point where his family just didn't talk about football because it was just too too painful for this guy who's just just being kept out of the game something that he's obviously grown up with and done for for his entire life and on a footballing level as well it was a great shame to lose him from La Liga for so long because he's a really really good player he was sort of rivaling Busquets almost for starting spot in the Spain national team and having watched him play many times myself in the last over the last 15 years of La Liga he has that sort of calmness and composure on the ball which as for all the deep-lying, talented technical midfielders you can get in Spain and in Europe, he genuinely, you could give the ball to him and you'd be safe. You'd know you weren't losing it. He would get it, recycle it. He'd have the vision to pick out the long pass. He'd have the have the ability to hold off a player and pick out a short one too. He was an excellent, excellent player. So, yeah, I'm in a word, I'm pretty buzzing for him. It is a lovely story, Bruno Soriano, I think. As well, there are th- that, that front page was either this morning or yesterday morning on, on Marca. Paulo, I'm not sure if you, if you, if you saw it with the three Villarreal players. That, that for me was, I mean, emotional just how symbolic this moment was with those three Villarreal players who'd all gone through hardships, who'd all suffered injuries. And- yeah, just the third player in that, in that three on the front page was Sergio Asenjo, who suffered a remarkable four cruciate injuries. Yeah. It really is a homing story, and I think those those three players are players we've been familiar with for so long. Even you know people who aren't regular watchers of La Liga will have appreciated them at certain points in their career. Obviously, Santi Cazorla is one who's really played abroad. I'm not sure the other two have him. I'm correct on that, but you know, just going back to the La Liga itself and looking at the reasons why you know you should be watching this, not just to see these heartwarming stories, but you've got these tantalising, exciting La Liga title races for the tightest, the tightest arguably in several years. I guess it's not the same without the drama and conspiracy theories that are associated with it. Sort of, you know, are there any interesting headlines in the Spanish sport papers lately, Barlow? Plenty. It's been it's been full of them. Um, Wele Raro was um, what Gerard Piquet tweeted after Real Madrid's. I think it was second to last game they played um, as we as we record tonight, um, which translates as it smells a bit funny, doesn't it? Um, and yeah, I don't want to get into the refereeing controversies because there are hours and many more endless hours of chat about that, which more or less go in circles. Um, but there has been some varsical goings on in La Liga. The title race itself, I think it comes down to running more or less. At Barcelona, they are they're both level on points, I should say. Real Madrid win the tiebreaker based on their head-to-head record. Barcelona have a slightly harder run-in. They play Atletico Madrid. Both of them play Villarreal. They also have the derby against Espanyol. Real Madrid still have to go to Bilbao. But aside from that, their schedule looks a little bit easier. And I think, although Real Madrid have an air of vulnerability about them, every single game they've played since they came back, there's been a spell in each of those games where Real Madrid have looked vulnerable, like they might throw the game away, but ultimately have come through it and have come through it scoring quite a few goals. Barca, on the other hand, continue to lack consistency. The fitness is the real issue. They, they they have some good spells in some of these games. They have more bad spells, I'd say. It's about 60 minutes and 30 minutes one way. 
good and bad. And I think, I mean, we, en- we mentioned Arturo there, but I think Barcelona, the irony of all this, these transfer shenanigans going on is that the youngsters from La Masia are the ones that are pulling them out of these holes. Ansu Fati and Ricky Puch are without doubt the players that are making the difference for them in the last couple of games. They've come on and added pace, energy. Ricky Puch, for all his La Masia heritage, so to speak, and the keeping the ball and the passing and all that, he's far more direct than Arturi, which I think is the biggest criticism of him. He's he's looking to break the lines. He's looking to go forward with every pass, which is something that Barcelona just haven't had in the midfield since, since Iniesta, essentially. So I think, ultimately, I still stand that I think Real Madrid will win it, but it will go down to the wire because neither of these teams is unbeatable at all. They're, they'll both drop points before the end of the season, I think. Really interesting, again, to, to hear about the title race. I think it will go just about down to the wire. But one point you mentioned, Ricky Puj, uh, I, I did watch the game albeit in the background against Athletic. I thought I thought Barcelona did look a bit maybe maybe I'm being unfair, but I th- I thought it looked a bit lackluster. But the presence of Ricky Puj when he did come on, as you say, made a huge difference. And perhaps people are getting ahead of themselves here, but I did see a few commentators on Twitter saying that he he could well be the next Andres Iniesta. Now obviously for for the listener if they're not familiar with Ricky Puj's style of play, how how would you evaluate that assessment that Ricky Puj could well be the next Iniesta in terms of what is Ricky Puj's style of play? We just have a couple more minutes before we need to move on, but how, how would you, I suppose, summarise that style of play and, and, and assess his contribution so far? I, I understand Iniesta comparison because he comes from La Masia and he's small and he has a good touch. But I think Iniesta, he had a bit more... I mean, certainly Pitch has got time to develop, but he dribbling with the ball at his feet, he, despite being incredibly slow, had this magic draw for the shoulder, which seemed to get him out of every single corner. Whereas Ricky Pooch, he's he's likely to play slightly deeper. He's looking to break the lines with his passes. He's looking to play the ball one touch, two touch. He doesn't want the ball for longer than that because, yeah, he, he wants to increase the pace. He's direct. He's he's very. He seems to be very smart on not only on the ball but off the ball. He seems to get to a lot of second balls. And a lot of the the worry about him or the concern about his viability as a first team player for Barcelona is surrounding his physicality because he is tiny. He looks like a twelve year old. Um, but he's he seems to be alert and aggressive enough to sort of um, hold himself hold zone on a La Liga pitch from what we've seen so far. And I think. If if Barcelona's midfielders continue to be as stodgy as you mentioned, Ali, as they have been, then there's no reason Ricky Puch should not be challenging for a starting spot because, frankly, in the 30, 40 minutes he's played since we came back, he's been one of their better midfielders. Yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's interesting to hear that. I think certainly from I've watched of them and, and, and you watch a lot more of Barcelona than I do, Barlow, but when I have watched Ricky Puch, I've been, I've been impressed with him. I've been relatively excited by him as well. So hopefully we'll continue to see his form and his, his ability develop as the season draws to a close. On that note, I think we'll draw matters to a close with La Liga. Excellent to hear about the latest updates from you again, Barlow. But we have a juicy final weekend in the Bundesliga and in the Bundesliga 2 to come up. So we're going to discuss that. So we'll be right back. Thanks. The Bundesliga, a quite tantalising weekend ahead of us. We're recording this on the Friday night, and that's mainly so that we could get the episode out before the half-two kickoffs. Of course, every single game in the Bundesliga, the final match of the season kicking off at half-past two. And then we also have the, the, the quite brilliant prospect of the Zweite Liga drawing to a close on Sunday. But we'll get to that in due course. The race for the Champions League final in the Bundesliga has gone down to the final day. Bayern, who had secured their place in next year's competition a number of weeks ago, wrapped up their eighth title in a row with a 1-0 win away at Lully Werder Bremen. And with that win, they just once again asserted their dominance. Since the Bundesliga was formed in Bayern Munich, of course, we weren't one of the founding members of the Bundesliga. With 1860 München, Bayern were considered to be surplus to requirements 
But Bayern have now, well, I think even before this title, they, they'd won more titles in the Bundesliga than every other German team put together. That's a staggering statistic, no matter how you look at it. They will be joined in the Champions League next year by Lucien Favre's Borussia Dortmund, who are guaranteed to finish second. Rassenball in Leipzig, and I stress Rassenball in Leipzig, not Red Bull Leipzig, because a few people on Twitter seem to think that they're called Red Bull Leipzig. They're not. Coached by Julian Nagelsmann, who's had a good first season. Inconsistent, a lot of draws, but a good enough first season. They're in third on 63 points, and they've all but secured their place in Europe next year by virtue of their impressive goal difference. So that means that Gladbach in fourth on 62 points and Leverkusen in fifth on 60 points will battle it out for the final Champions League spot. Both sides have produced some really entertaining football before and after the break, but purely based on the football you've watched this season, who would you prefer to see in Europe's elite competition next season? Barlow. I'm a little bit conflicted. I will admit to a slight man crush on Kai Havertz. He is he's languid. He he does a lot of running, but he also seems to do many beautiful things with the ball without really trying. So yeah, I quite like Kai Havertz, but at the same time, I think Marco Rosa, his Gladbach side are a bit more entertaining as a side. They play a slightly more unique or slightly more idiosyncratic style of football, whereas Leverkusen, like, they're entertaining, but they're a little bit all over the place sometimes. Yeah, I think I'm similar to you, Barlow. I'd, I think I think at the end of the day, we'll be seeing Kai Havertz in the Champions League, whether by Leverkusen make it or not. I think he's destined for a transfer this summer, so it'll be maybe one of the best things to see next season is where he gets on in an even better team. Yeah, it would be sad for Leverkusen not to make it. Although, you know, Mönchengladbach, I've got a bit of a soft spot for them. I um, The first football team I ever saw, God, about 17, 18 years ago now. And they, what, what's, I guess what's the nice thing about them is they've been in it for a few years since 16, 17 season. And they've got, you know, they've got some really long-serving, honest pros at the team in the likes of Vendel, Fabian Johnson, uh, Patrick Herman and uh, players sort of of that ilk, and it, 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 I always think it's really nice when you know those players do get to experience the sort of most elite level of football, most elite club competition at least in their playing careers, because they certainly have played a big part in the club cause. Yeah, no, I, I, and I have to say as well, as much as I've loved watching Kai Havertz and I suppose what you could call a false nine role for Leverkusen in the last few few match days. As much as I have loved watching him play ball, you mentioned that man crush. I think most football fans, if they don't admit to, to having a man crush on Kai Havertz, then they're lying. But as much as I've loved Leverkusen, as much as I've loved watching them free-flowing, they are very naive defensively. And and, and, and you've seen that with, with some of their games since, since the enforced break. And really, I, I, I'm a big fan of, of Marco Rosa at Gladbach. I'm, a huge fan of René Marek. People may well be familiar with the German taxi side, Spielver Lagerung. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, so forgive me if, if I've mispronounced it. But René Marek, essentially, 27 years of, of age, and he's the assistant coach to Marco Rosa at Gladbach. And he started out by writing about tactics. And, and we obviously spoke to Marton Bala a few episodes ago, the young data analyst from, from Hungary. And it just shows you that there is a route into football in this day and age for people who haven't played the game professionally and who a lot of professional football players would perhaps look down their nose at, or even juniors players would look down their nose at as people who aren't proper football boys. But having said that, I mean, Rene Marek is, is, is loving the dream. He's, he's got a huge chance of, of being the assistant coach next year at a team that will be potentially playing in the Champions League. So it just shows you, and that story and, and, and Marco Rosa's story, there were obviously... The rumours that he was going to be joining Celtic, and I don't think that would ever have happened in a million years. And that's not a slight on Celtic or a slight on the Scottish game, but it's more just the appeal of Gladbach as one of the biggest clubs in, in Europe, arguably, you could say historically, certainly one of the biggest clubs in Germany historically. And for that reason, I would love to see them back in the Champions League. Not been there, Michael, as you said, since 2016, 2017. And <laughs> they did have the, the misfortune last year of being leapfrogged by none other than Bayer Leverkusen into that final Champions League spot on the final day 
of the season. So they'll be looking to perhaps forget that nightmare, banish those woes and, and, and qualify. I would love to see them do it. I really would. I really would. And, and, and hopefully they will. But having said that, if we see Leverkusen qualify for the Champions League, it might, just might, mean that we get to see Kai Havertz for one more year in the Bundesliga. So for me, as an avid fan of the Bundesliga, it's a win-win situation. Deep down at the other end of the table, Ali, the battle to beat the drop has also gone to the last day. What's going on? Yeah, Barlow, it really has gone down to, to the last day. It's, it's exciting. As we've discussed previously on the podcast, 16th place provides the potential, albeit perilous, safety net of a home and away playoff with the team that finishes third in Bundesliga 2, the Zweite Liga. 17th place obviously means automatic relegation and in 18th place, you're going down straight away as well. Paderborn are in 18th. They're already relegated. Their immediate return to Bundesliga 2 was confirmed with two games to spare when they lost to Union Berlin in the capital. But back to this battle to, to avoid, I suppose, the 16th, well, it's the battle to avoid the 16th place spot that's now becoming the battle to obtain the 16th place spot. But in the last few weeks, Union Berlin, Mainz, Köln, Augsburg, they've all done enough to keep out of trouble and avoid a nervy final match day. <laughs> and at this point, I would just point out a lovely story, uh, quite a funny story, uh, an uplifting story. Augsburg's draw with Fortuna Dusseldorf last weekend, in fact, means that they'll be playing in the top flight for the 10th consecutive season. And Bal, you might have seen this, and as a, an avid follower of Spanish football, you'll, you'll no doubt find it amusing. At the end of the game, Iceberg's players don t-shirts celebrating La Decima uh, and of course uh, perhaps mocking or perhaps idolising the Real Madrid of, of a few seasons ago but anyway there is football operates in the most wonderful of circles I think we've realised that in doing this podcast but Iceberg's Rani Kadira is of course the brother of Sammy Kadira and while he didn't play in that final when Real Madrid sealed La Decima, he was on Real Madrid's books when, when they won the La Decima back in 2014. And it's a nice story. I'm not sure. I mean, some people might interpret it as they were mocking Real Madrid, but for me, they were just delighted that they'd secured football. And for a team like Augsburg, I've only ever had the, the joy, shall we say, of watching Augsburg once. And they were trounced 6-0 by a Thiago Alcantara inspired by Munich at the Allianz. Robert Lewandowski scored the hat chicken. Thiago Alcantara, honestly. I think it's the single most majestic display I've ever had the joy of watching. But anyway, I've digressed enormously there. Back to this 16th place in the Bundesliga. Werder Bremen and Fortuna Dusseldorf are battling it out to avoid that automatic relegation spot on the final weekend. If you ask me, and if you ask most followers of German football, I think it's fair to say that Dusseldorf are the most fancied to finish in 16th and Bremen to go down automatically. Now, that would be huge. A team of Werder Bremen's size. Bremen have played, Michael, you mentioned it in the last podcast, in more Bundesliga seasons than any other club. That's, that's staggering. For all of Bayern Munich's dominance, they've not played in as many Bundesliga seasons as Werder Bremen. And Werder Bremen, coached, of course, by Florian Kohfeldt, a manager who I have a lot of respect for, a lot of time for him and his methods, They've only been relegated once in their history, and that was way back in 1980. My initial notes when I was typing them out said 1908, and I realised no, that's not right because the Bundesliga wasn't created until the 1960s. Anyway, Werder Bremen must win at home to Cologne, or Cologne rather, on Saturday to even have a chance of making it into the playoff against the team that finishes third in the Spider Liga. Potentially, if they do somehow finish in 16th, they could have a mouth-watering tie over two legs against North German rivals Hamburg. That would be huge. Hamburg, obviously, a huge club historically in Germany. It would be massive. But as much as I would love to see that happen, I just can't. And that's because... <laughs> I mentioned this in the chat during the week, guys, and Michael said, get that saved. And it was readily saved into the statistics bank. Bremen have only won one game at home in the league all season. And that came way back in September against our old La Decima celebrating friends, Augsburg. Even if they do manage to record just their second win of the season, they'll most likely have to rely on Union Berlin beating for Dusseldorf in the capital. Now, I don't know if you managed to catch any of the game, guys, 
between Union Berlin and Hoffenheim in Sinsheim at the Rhinecker Arena. Hoffenheim won 4-0, and obviously this was the post-Alfred Schroeder era. And Hoffenheim were brilliant. Union Berlin were, shall we say, somewhat hungover. Maybe not literally, but figuratively, because they obviously just sealed their status in the Bundesliga following their, their win over Paderborn. So that was, that was March day 32. And pride aside now, they, they really have nothing to play for. Dusseldorf, bearing in mind that they really only need a win unless Werder Bremen can pull off a quite stunning four or five goal win uh, on the last day of the season. Dusseldorf have drawn a staggering nine Bundesliga games out of 14 since Uwe Rosser was appointed as manager back in January. They have been just about unbeatable outside of the, the, the big four, the big five in Germany. Since Uwe Rosler, of course, was the manager at Leeds United, he went to Fleetwood Town as well, and then, and, and then did relatively okay at, at, at Malmo before joining Fortuna Dusseldorf. If Fortuna Dusseldorf can record yet another draw, and not many people, not many sensible people at least would bet against that, Werder would need to beat Cone by four clear goals. And for a side that have struggled for goals, and for a side whose key creative outlet, Milot Rashika, has been in such poor form, maybe he's tempted by that move to AC Milan that we've seen recently in the papers, Ralph Ranić eyeing him, Upa Meccano and Patrick Sheik up as new recruits in Italy. I just can't see Werder Bremen scoring four goals, let alone winning by four clear goals. So the odds really do seem to be stacked up against Florian Kufeld's Bremen. Yeah, I think it's interesting when you said about Hamburg, because with that statistic about Werder Bremen, I think up until Hamburg got relegated, they'd never, they previously held that record and they'd never been relegated from the Bundesliga up until, does it, three seasons ago now, I think. But yeah, I mean, Hamburg, it's, it's looking very dubious as to whether they'll get the third place playoff. But just, I guess, in line with it, it's been a really exciting um, end towards the second division in Germany. And um, I'm sure people probably want to hear a bit more about who we may be seeing joining the remaining 15 or 16 teams in the Bundesliga for next season. Michael, the, the Zweite Liga, I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. Perhaps this season, I've not watched as much of it as I would have liked to. And, and I think the enforced break probably played a part in that. I did I'm unashamedly lose a bit of interest in it. But in recent weeks, my interest has, has picked up once again. It's, it's, it's one of the most predictably unpredictable leagues or second division leagues, rather, in, in Europe, if not the world. The quality, perhaps not the best, but the entertainment values are, are, are through the roof. It's a brilliant league. And in terms of who will be coming up next season, 2020 to 2021 season, we'll see the return of Arminia Bielefeld, that source, of course, of that famous conspiracy that Bielefeld doesn't exist as a town. If you've not read about that, do, do type that into your Google search engines and then prepare to have your mind well and truly blown. But anyway, yeah, I mean, the Bielefeld will be back in Germany's top flight. It'll be their 18th season. They were relegated from the Bundesliga over a decade ago, back in 2009, but they have pretty much romped to the Zweite Liga title this season. They're seven points clear, but the title's never really looked in doubt. And I'm intrigued to see how they'll go on next season. They've outperformed former Bundesliga giants in Stuttgart and Hamburg. And I I think they'll be quite quietly optimistic. The squad's made up of players from, from the lower leagues. I think they've only got one player on the team who has any experience of the Bundesliga. And even then, I think they've only played three games. I think they'll fancy their chances of, of at least finishing, you know, 14th, 13th. They'll, they'll be unexpected. I think a lot of teams will perhaps, in the same way that Livingston and, and, and Scotland have, have been able to, to catch teams by surprise. You might see the same from Ina Bielefeld they'll almost certainly be joined in the Bundesliga next year by Stuttgart. Obviously, the sporting director at Stuttgart these days is Thomas Hitzelsperger, who seemed to produce worldie after worldie after worldie from 20, 30, 35 yards back in the day. Great player, and his side looks set to return. They're in second place in the Zweite League on 58 points, and they host Darmstadt, who, of course, have had recent experience in the Bundesliga. And... As I said, all the Zweite Liga games are half past two on the Sunday. Bundesliga, half two on the Saturday. Zweite Liga, half past two on the Sunday. So, so a full weekend of football, if, if you're that way persuaded. Of course, Stuttgart lost the relegation playoff last year against Union Berlin. 
and that will still be fresh in their minds. They'll be wanting to avoid the, the playoff. They'll just want to go up automatically. And after a decent enough season, they look set to return to the top flight at the first time of asking. So we'll, we'll watch that one closely on Sunday. Now, that's just where it gets interesting. I mentioned the relegation playoff earlier from the perspective of the top flight, but it's just as exciting in the second tier. Whoever finishes in 16th place in Bundesliga, be it Dusseldorf or Bremen, they'll face the third place team in the Schweizer Liga. And the battle to, to secure that third spot in the Bundesliga 2 and a place in that playoff has similarly gone down to the wire. So at the moment, third space is currently occupied by Heidenheim and they beat playoff rivals Hamburg last weekend. And it was a quite breathtaking game. They came from behind to win 2-1 thanks to goals in the 80th and then the 96th minute. It was remarkable. But that result allowed the side from Baden-Württemberg in southern Germany to leapfrog their visitors going into the final game of the season. So Heidenheim are on 55 points, but they travel to champions Bielefeld, and they'll certainly be hoping that Bielefeld will have a promotion party hangover, so to speak. Hamburg in 54 points, they host mid-table Sandhausen. So they'll be fairly confident, shall we say, of, of taking three points there. So really it boils down to whether or not Heidenheim have it in them to go to Bielefeld and pick up all three points. Guys, do we have anything else that we would like to add? I have one story from from slightly further over, slightly more east in, in, in Europe. Yeah. Michael, you, you, you're licking your lips there because... No, I'm licking my lips solely at the story because I heard you two discussing it when the call started and I, I honestly don't have a clue what it is. So I'm coming in this sort of innocently as... All the listeners are who won't be familiar with the story. Yeah, over to you, Rally. I look forward to it. Yeah, no, Michael. I must. I must confess. I have not prepared any notes for this. So, um, this is my fire in the booth, so to speak. I'm purely going on on uh, emotion alone here. And it was one of these. But Barlow, I think. I think the two of us spoke about it briefly, and it was one of these stories that comes up every so often and makes you think. Football's mental. So basically, Rostov are chasing champions, who well, or rather where I think those hopes following this particular story are now dashed somewhat. But Rostov were set to travel to face Sochi, and Sochi are down the wrong end of the table. Rostov are the right end of the table, and they had significant hopes of qualifying for the Champions League. But disaster struck just before they were, they were due to play Sochi. Rostov had six players who tested positive for the coronavirus and protocol in the Russian Premier League deemed that the whole team and the whole of the coaching staff, the whole of the backroom staff had to go into quarantine. So that left Rostov with no players to play against Sochi or no senior players. Rostov went to the equivalent of the FA, the, the, the Russian FA, uh, and requested for the game to be postponed. The Russian FA were fine with that. They said, yep, we can play it again in July. We'd penciled in dates for games to be rearranged on. And, 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 and Rostov assumed, yep, that'll be fine. So the ball's in in Sochi's court. Sochi have to agree to this. But Sochi, um, and I'm going to have to beep this out in a minute, because Sochi, with a, a cunning display of <laughs> housery, um, decided, no, do you know what? We're fighting relegation. Doesn't ca- we don't care if Rostov don't have a team. The game's going ahead. So that request, although it had been accepted by the Russian FA, was declined by Sochi. So the game goes ahead and Rostov have nobody to play. They have no players. So they, they call up 16, 17, 18 and 19 year olds. And these, a lot of these boys who, because... Bear in mind that the, the players from the Youth Academy who were good enough to be in the first team were training with the first team and they were also required to go into quarantine because they'd been in contact with those who tested positive. So you had a squad of literal schoolboys and, and even, I suppose, maybe in the early stages of university or college playing against Sochi. It started brilliantly for Rostov. They went up 1-0 inside the opening 60 seconds, but then it just petered out and it got to the stage where it was 8-1 to Sochi, and I think the, the, the Sochi manager brought on more strikers. The game finished 10-1. Sochi posted 
on Instagram, slating the schoolboys. So that's the, as soon as Rostov have a full squad of players, you can be sure that they will be two foot in every sort of player in sight. I'm, I'm, I'm buzzing to watch the first game between these two sides when we're back to full normality. But Rostov's Champions League dreams are, are surely gone. Sochi have gained rivals all over the country. But there is one nice note from this. The young 17-year-old goalkeeper saved a penalty. And when the Rostov team were returning to wherever they were returning to, they were greeted with the ultras and their flares and their pyrotechnics. So I suppose having been beat 10-1, I and mean, that could have disastrous effects for their mental health, for their confidence moving forward. It really is horrible, horrible stuff from Sochi. But I suppose every cloud has a silver lining, no matter how small that silver lining is. And these boys have had a hero's welcome and they've gained fans and, and support from across Russia and indeed across Europe. And that, for me, encapsulates what football's all about. You can have the bad side, that we, as, as we saw with, with Sochi, but you can also have this good side of fans welcoming and giving a hero's return to, to these young players. On that note, guys, do we have anything that we want to, to add? Good for me. A fascinating story to end on, Ali. I'll quickly plug my uh, latest piece on at Stamp Football, Simeone at Let's Go, and the problems he's been facing 14 months after signing his new contract. Give that a read. Yeah, do, do check that out at Posted Stamp Football. Great writing once again. Michael, we're, we're running out of time on the call. I would normally give you a chance to, to speak, but I'm going to have to to cut things short. It's been great having, having you both on once again. Some really interesting topics and we'll be sure to come back in a fortnight's time with the Italian, Spanish and, of course, the German picture a whole lot clearer. So thank you once again, guys. Thank you to the listener. Goodbye. Oh, thank you.